You are listening to a sermon from MCA Church. To learn more about our community, head online to mcachurch.ca. Thanks. How's everybody doing this morning? Excellent. Four of you. Good, good. Let's try that again. How's everybody doing this morning? Good, good. It is great for me to be back with you again uh, this weekend. It's always a pleasure. Uh, You may be wondering what is going on. Keith is away on holidays, as many of you know. Um, Chris was supposed to be here this morning, uh, but Chris has been suffering terribly with his family with the flu, and so I got the last-minute call, so you are stuck with me. Uh, But it's my... Yeah. (laughs) And again, four people. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) In case you're wondering, they're all on the payroll, so that's fine. But, uh, uh, my name is Troy McKnight. For those of you who don't know me, I work in resource development at uh, Colonus Gospel Mission. And uh, just before I begin, as I usually do, if I could just have like two minutes, just a point of privilege, just to share two things with you about Colonus Gospel Mission. Can I do that quickly? Two people again. Good. I'm going to keep going. Excellent. Um, first of all, for anyone who supported or participated in our Strides Kelowna Walk Run fundraiser last weekend, was anybody out for that? Anybody from the church family? Yeah, I see some hands out there. Awesome. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, I just want to say thank you. You as a church family have supported us for many, many years. And last weekend, we were able to raise over $57,000 through that event. Uh, and all of that money goes directly to the essential services that we offer to people experiencing acute need in our community. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your ongoing support. The second thing I just want to bring you up to date on is that we are actually in a capital campaign uh, to purchase one of the houses in our women's community. It's uh, Sela One is the name of the house. And Sela, as you may know, is a Hebrew word that means a place of pause, a reflection of stillness in a busy world. And uh, it is a place where women who've experienced homelessness or have been on the verge of experiencing homelessness, they now can call home and experience life and hope and healing in community. Last spring, uh, we discovered, we were told that uh, suddenly that house was going to be up for sale and that uh, our eight women could be homeless if we didn't take action. So we as a, as a board and as a community took action and KGM purchased that house with a short-term bridging loan and we are now in a capital campaign to pay off the cost of that so that money can come back into our contingencies and go back out into programs in our communities. And so we are currently in the midst of securing sale of one for women for generations to come. Uh, The cost of the home was $1.5 million. And so uh, it's a big capital campaign. But I'm here to tell you that this campaign launched in December, and we currently have raised $857,000 towards that home. It's been incredible. And so perhaps some of you this morning would like to learn more about, well, how could I be involved? Because people are making gifts large and small. It's really about us coming together as a community and letting these women know that we see them, we value them, and we want to give them a safe place where they can experience healing and hope for generations to come. So if you'd like to learn more, I have some brochures about the campaign. I'd love to share them with you today. That's it for updates. So this morning, I'm going to invite you to jump in with me, and we're going to take a look at not one, not two, but three, a triplet of powerful, subversive parables this morning. And I know it's a lot, but I talk quickly. You know this. We're going to be fine. So, uh, three trip, a triplet of powerful parables this morning. Before we jump in, I just want to be sure we all start on the same page. I have been rediscovering the power of Jesus' parables over the last couple of years, thanks in large part to a small little amazing book called Short Stories by Jesus. It's written by a New Testament, uh, New Testament, Jewish New Testament scholar named Amy Jill Levine, and she has been re-threading my head when it comes to the parables. Uh, Amy Jill really challenges us 
as evangelical Christians to rethink the way that we read and see the parables. She challenges us. She actually says that what we've done is we've actually domesticated the parables of Jesus and turned them into these kind of warm, fuzzy children's stories that reinforce our beliefs and biases instead of allowing them to be what they were originally intended to be in the first century, which were carefully crafted stories that were, they were crafted to disturb and to provoke and to unsettle the listener. And so Amy Jill says, if we read a parable, and after we read that parable, we go, oh, I love that story. That story makes me feel so good. It just makes me feel very certain about who I am, what I believe, and how I'm living out the life that Jesus has called me to, then we have probably missed the point. And we should stop, and we should reread it again. You see, that's the power of Jesus's parables. Every single time we read them, we have the opportunity to be provoked and to be unsettled and to be disturbed and challenged once again. And so this morning, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to come with me on this journey with open minds and open hearts, to be open to what the Spirit might have to say to us as we peel back the layers on some very familiar parables of Jesus. And this might be more challenging for some of us who have tended to read these parables in a certain way through a certain lens. And so this morning, I just want to invite you to just say, Holy Spirit, I'm open. Speak, and let's see where we end up. Is that fair? Can we do that? Cool. Awesome. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to read a fairly large track of Scripture, because I think that's a good thing. Uh, and we shouldn't be afraid of that. And so we're going to read all three parables in one take. And then we're going to, look for, uh, then we're going to look, locate them in their context. Then we're going to draw some threads that kind of pull them all together because I would suggest that all of these are not only related, they're interrelated, they're dependent upon one another. We really want to understand what's happening here. And then we'll walk through them quickly and see what kind of provocative questions bubble to the surface that might unsettle us a little bit this morning. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 15 beginning in verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you, then in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son put together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My, fa- my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Boom, there is so much going on here. And if we have any hope of kind of peeling back the layers on all of this, we have to first locate these parables in context, but we're lucky because Luke gives us the context right here at the very beginning in Luke chapter 15, verses one and two. We are told that Jesus is gathered together, hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and teaching them, apparently in the context of a meal, because we are also told that there are Pharisees and teachers of the law there, and they are complaining loud enough for everyone else in the room to hear that this man eats with sinners, right? You see, once again, we find Jesus doing exactly what he loves to do. He is eating and partying and celebrating and rubbing elbows with all the wrong kinds of people, at least in the minds of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And so there's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and they are questioning Jesus' motives, his integrity, and his morality. They're complaining out loud for everyone to hear that this man, he welcomes and eats with tax collectors and sinners. He identifies with them. He wants to be in relationship with them. Can you feel the tension in the room? And here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus he doesn't complain. He, he doesn't give in to spoken or unspoken religious pressure. He, he doesn't pick a fight. He just starts teaching. He just starts telling parables. He starts telling stories. Stories that I would suggest are for everyone in the room. Because you see, I think it's really easy for us to think that what Jesus is about to say is only for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who need to learn this lesson about what it means to have grace and what hospitality means and what it looks like to be a part, a member of the kingdom of God. We might be tempted to think that it's just for them, but there's nothing in the context that indicates it's just for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. As a matter of fact, I would suggest that all of the context points to the fact that this is a gathering of wealthy tax collectors and wealthy religious elite and they are in the same room together, and whatever Jesus has to say is for everyone. And actually, that's the power of Jesus' parables. It's for everyone who hears them, including us today. So let's see where we end up. The first parable in the triplet begins this way. Crazy phrase. He says, let's suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. Now, right away, people listening to the story of the first century would understand that Jesus is talking about a very wealthy person. And then he continues on, and he says, and let's suppose that you lose one of those sheep. One of those sheep is missing, and you notice. I want to pause here for a minute. Anybody here ever farm sheep? A couple people, yeah. We used to have some sheep on our, we had a little hobby farm with my wife's parents, and I can tell you from personal experience, it's hard to keep track of 20 sheep, let alone 100 sheep. I mean, check out this picture for a minute. Who can tell me if it comes up? It does come up, yes. Who can tell me? 100 sheep or 99? Quick. How many? How many sheep in the picture? 
It's almost impossible to know. And look, this is static. They're not even moving around. So what's this tell us about this sheep owner? This sheep owner, in order to notice that one of his 100 sheep is missing, this sheep owner must pay very close attention to his sheep. Would you agree? He's someone who is counting and watching over and caring for his sheep. And when he notices that just one of his 100 sheep is missing, he springs into action. He leaves the 99, which by the way, I saw a few hands down here, you know this, if you hang out with sheep, that is a dumb idea because sheep are as dumb as a bag of hammers. They are not smart animals. But still, he leaves his 99 and he goes out and he searches for the one. Why? Why would the sheep owner do that? Why would he leave the 99 to go find the one? I would suggest because without that one sheep, his flock is incomplete. His flock is not whole. And so he goes out and he searches and he finds that sheep and he puts it on his shoulders and he brings it back home. If I can interject here again too, anyone ever pick up a sheep before? I have. I can tell you from personal experience, it is not fun. Why does that matter? Well, I think it matters because what this tells us is this whole action of searching and finding and picking up the sheep and reuniting his flock was hard, exhausting, costly work for the sheep owner. It wasn't easy. It required energy, attention, and focus. But don't miss this. The searching and the finding led to celebration. When his flock was back together, he called all of his neighbors together, and they had a huge party. They had a huge celebration. He wanted everyone to come and celebrate with him because his flock was now complete. No sheep is missing. No sheep is unaccounted for. No sheep is lost. And so they celebrate. But Jesus is just warming up. Then he says, or suppose there's a woman who has 10 silver coins, literally 10 Greek drachma. And we need to understand that a Greek drachma is worth about $100 in today's currency. So I want you to think about that. This is a woman who has $1,000 in today's currency back in the first century. We are talking about a boatload of money, okay? Most of the people listening to Jesus' story wouldn't even be able to kind of wrap their heads around what would it be like to have that much spare money around. So once again, this is a person of wealth, of means, of economic power. She looks a lot like the sheep owner in the first story. And like the sheep owner in the first story, she loses one of her coins. And like the sheep owner in the first story, she notices that one of her coins is missing. Now let's pause there for a minute. Surely it's easier to keep track of 10 coins than it is to keep track of 100 sheep, right? But it's not that easy, really. I mean, it still requires counting and being attentive. I mean, just by looking at the stack, who can tell me? How many coins do I have? Just by looking at it. How many? Is there nine? Who thinks there's nine? Who thinks there's ten? Oh, ten, okay. You're all wrong. There's 11. <laughs> so you can't tell just by looking at it because you have to count. And so for order, in order for this woman to know that there was a coin missing, it would mean that she counted her coins. She paid attention to her coins. She watched over her coins. And when she noticed that one of her coins was missing, just like the sheep owner, she jumps. She springs into action. She lights lights and lights up all the corners of her home, and she sweeps the entire house. She sets aside the nine that she has, and she goes painstakingly searching for the one until she finds it. And then when she finds it, what does she do? She calls up all of her friends and neighbors. And interestingly here, the Greek is feminine, so basically she calls all of her girlfriends, and they have a massive party, and they celebrate. Why? Because her stack of coins, her finances, 
are whole again. No coin is missing. No coin is unaccounted for. No coin is lost. Any lights coming on or some threads coming together? But Jesus is still not done. He continues on to the next story, the last one in this triple of parables that begins this way. There once was a man who had two sons. I want you to think about this for a minute. We've had a sheep owner who had 100 sheep to care for, and then we've had a woman who had 10 coins to care for, and now we have a father who has two sons to care for. Surely it is easier to care for two sons and 10 coins and 100 sheep, right? But see, what we discover in this story is that this father wasn't very good at counting. This father wasn't very attentive to his sons. This father didn't actually realize that not just one, but both of his sons were lost and in desperate need of being found. Which is fascinating, isn't it? Because a son is of infinitely more worth than a coin or a sheep. And I think there's an important lesson here for us. You see, I think it's really easy, it's really easy to often miss counting those who are closest to us, those that we value most, those that are right under our noses. You see, this father missed counting his sons. And I think this is kind of the hinge idea that kind of pulls all three of these stories together, and it's this. You cannot search for, and you cannot find, and you cannot celebrate that which you don't know is missing in the first place. In other words, we have to notice who or what is missing before the search that leads to celebration can begin. I'm going to say that again. We have to know who or what is missing before the search that leads to celebration can begin. The story continues. The youngest son comes to his father and he says, Father, I want my part of the inheritance right now, which, frankly, in any day and age, but particularly in the first century, was an offense to the father, but more so, it just showed a complete and utter disconnect between his father and his family. And this father in this story, instead of letting those alarm bells inform him of the fact that his family is fractured and his son wants to leave, and instead of doing everything within his power to keep his family complete and whole, this father actually agrees to split the inheritance with the younger son. Which, by the way, anyone, anyone who could kind of split off their inheritance early, liquefy half their assets and give them to a younger son right now, means that they would have been incredibly wealthy. So once again, the main character in this story is someone of wealth, of means, of economic power. And we are told that the father liquefies the assets, gives the son half, and the son heads off to a distant land, and the family is fractured. The family is incomplete. The family is no longer whole. And the son heads off to a distant land. He parties like it's 1999. Now, I want you to notice something, which I thought was fascinating. Notice what the father in this story isn't doing. He doesn't put everything aside and go and search and find his son. Unlike the sheep owner and unlike the lady with the coins, he doesn't count his son as lost. Why? Why? Could it be that as a wealthy landowner, he was too focused on regaining the money? Could it be that he was too focused on the work that needed to be done around the estate? 
Could it be that he was just so caught up in a culture of busyness that he didn't think he had the time to search and find? Jesus doesn't tell us. But for some reason, he doesn't go. He doesn't spring into action. And we're told the son heads off to a distant land, and he just blows all of his inheritance in wild living until tragedy strikes. A famine hits the land, and he is so desperate and destitute that he hires himself out to a farmer in the land, and he feeds pigs. As a Jewish boy, he's feeding pigs. Can you imagine? And finally, he hits rock bottom. He comes to his senses, and he realizes, man, my father's servants have it better than me. I'm going to go home and just offer to be a servant. And as he makes his way home, we discover that even though the father did not go and pursue him, did not go and search for him, at least he did not forget him, because when he saw him, he recognized him and he ran to him and he embraced him and he welcomed him and he forgave him and he brought him back into the family and he called for the fatted calf to be killed and they were going to have a huge barbecue and they invited the whole community. I want you to picture what this must have been like, the joy and the celebration as neighbors are flooding in and you can smell the fatted calf and the barbecue and the music's pumping. Right? I mean, you can just, the whole place is bumping, the buffet is out and the celebration is on. But someone is still missing. And in a brilliant twist, Jesus tells us that the older brother, while all this is going on, was out in the field working. And he hears the celebration happening. And so he makes his way back to the house to see what's going on, and he finds two servants who are like stuffing their faces with fatted calf. And he's like, what in the world's going on here? And these two servants, not his dad, these two servants say, oh, you haven't heard yet, I guess. Hey, you're good-for-nothing inheritance-blowing brother came home, and your dad's just throwing a huge party because he's so happy to have him back. I want you to think about this for a minute. Can you imagine how this older brother felt? His father didn't count him. His father didn't even notice he was missing. His father didn't even bother to invite him to come to the celebration. You see, this older son is just as lost as the younger one, and the father doesn't know it. But that's about to change. The older son is livid. He is fuming. He refuses to go in, and so some servants go and tell the father and Finally, he springs into action. He puts aside all of his guests in the celebration for the younger son. He leaves that all behind, and he rushes out in search of his lost older son. He finds him fuming in the shadows, and he begs him to please, please come back inside. Please, let's bring the family back together. Let's make the family complete and united again. Let's celebrate, but the damage has been done. And what is one of the saddest tirades in all the parables, this older son in verse 29 says, look, all these years I've slaved for you and never disobeyed your orders, and that, yet you've not even given me like a goat to celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours, in case you're wondering if the family's still fractured, did you see what he says? Not my brother. When this son of yours who squandered your property and prostitutes comes home, you celebrate him. Did you catch the way he referred to himself? I've been slaving for you. Dad, you have used me and treated me like someone that you own, someone with no value and no worth in the culture. Dad, you haven't counted me. You haven't cared for me. You haven't loved me. You've ignored me. Basically, this son is saying, Dad, how could you not have seen that all this time I've been lost and longing to be found, longing to be counted, longing to be valued, longing to be loved? 
be a part of the family. And yet you've treated me like a slave. And I want you to notice again how this father, he acts differently than the owner of the sheep and the coins. He doesn't really take personal responsibility for how fractured his family is, but instead his response to his son's heartbreak is to assure him of his economic status. You don't have to worry, son. Everything I have is yours. As if what this son is longing for is money, finances. I mean, I just don't think this dad gets it because I don't think that's what this is about at all. I would suggest that what this son is really longing for is a restored relationship with his father. He's longing for the family to come together again. And the story ends. And we're left to wonder. We're, we're left feeling off balance and uncomfortable. So what happens then? Will the family come back together like the flock of sheep and like the stack of coins? Will the father be able to actually find the older brother and bring the family back together again? Or will they remain fractured? How is it going to play out? We don't know. Jesus leaves it open. But I would suggest that these three parables actually challenge us with way more provocative, difficult, unsettling questions. Questions like, where do you find yourself in this triplet of parables this morning? This morning, are you lost and needing to be found? Is there a relationship in your life that is fractured? Are you being invited to go on a search that's going to be hard and exhausting and costly in order for this fractured relationship to come back together again so that person can be found and you can celebrate? Or maybe we're here this morning and the Holy Spirit is stirring our heart about the fact that we haven't been very good at counting. I mean, when was the last time you counted? When was the last time you paid attention to your family, to your kids? to the people in your workplace, the people in your scope of influence? When was the last time you kind of counted and made sure that everybody was present and safe and secure? Is it possible that maybe some of us this morning have bought into this culture of consumerism and busyness that we are caught up in here in our culture day in and day out, and we've bought this idea that we're just too busy? We're too busy to count, we're too busy to search, we're too busy to spend the time and energy to find and to celebrate. Can you imagine what it would look like if we, as the church in our community here in Kelowna, made it our mission to be a people who are all about searching and finding and reuniting and celebrating? Can you imagine what that would look like? Because you see, the longer that I have sat with these three parables, and over these last three years, as I've had the absolute privilege of working at Kelowna's Gospel Mission, watching each and every day, especially as our outreach team goes out, and every day they live this out in front of my eyes. They search, they find, they restore, they bring wraparound services, they bring people back into community, and they help them on their journey home. And when someone is housed, we celebrate like crazy. You see, as this has kind of worked its way into my heart over the last couple of years, I am convinced that this is what the gospel looks like in action. That this is God's call for each and every one of us today. God's heart is that we would be a people 
who count and search and find and work to bring restoration and then celebrate like crazy God's goodness and grace in the middle of it all. So my friends and my family here at Mission Creek Alliance Church, it's my hope and my prayer that as this triplet of parables works its way in your heart and your mind over these next few days, that your hearts will remain open and that the Spirit might provoke, He might disturb, and He might unsettle us as He calls us to live and love like Jesus in our families, in our workplaces, in our communities, in our world. May it be so in all of our hearts and lives today. I'm just going to invite us to kind of close our eyes and pause just for a moment. I always like to give like a little bit of space, a little bit of silence, because I know one thing for sure. The Holy Spirit is present with us today, and he's at work, and he's speaking. And I don't want to rush. I want to give us just a moment to pause and to listen. Listen to what he might have to say. Maybe he's bringing someone to mind. Maybe he's bringing a situation to mind. Maybe it's something else. But let's just pause and listen for a moment, and then I'll close in prayer, and the worship team will lead us out. Lord Jesus, as we enter into this Lenten and Easter season, um, I pray that these parables would continue to work in us, especially in this season, as we were reminded earlier, a season where you came to us. You did not wait for us to come looking for you. You came to us, and you loved us. And you took the broken pieces of our lives and our communities and our families and you put them back together again. Remind us again, I pray today, of how lost we were and how gracious you have been in seeking and finding and restoring and continuing that restoring work in us today. Lord Jesus, through this Lenten and Easter season, I pray that we would hear you calling each and every one of us to embrace this exact same rhythm in our lives. May we be people who count and who search and who find and who work to restore. And then God, teach us to be a people that celebrate, who celebrate well together every single time. Every single time you bring people back together, you bring that which is broken, and you make it whole. I pray you'll continue to work in each of our lives today, and we thank you for your goodness and your grace. May you receive the honor and glory and praise, we ask. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.